0: the Hogan Levels Brexit podcast. I'm Susan Bright, the firm's managing partner for the UK and Africa and leader of our Brexit task force. As you can imagine, Brexit has somewhat taken over my work life since the UK voted to leave the EU back in June 2016. Since then, we've been doing a lot of thinking about what Brexit will mean for our clients, for businesses, for the UK, for the EU and for the rest of the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was part of our Navigating the Negotiations webinar series, which we've been running throughout 2017. You can find the slides that accompany the webinar and much, much more about Brexit on our hub at hoganlovels.com forward slash Brexit. We hope you find this podcast useful. Please do rate, review and subscribe. It helps others to find the podcast and make sure that you know when our next episode is released.
1: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the latest in our series of webinars about navigating the negotiations. My name is Susan Bright. I'm the Managing Partner for the UK and Africa at Hogan Lovells and the leader of our Brexit Task Force. So this is the fourth uh, webinar in our series. Um, on the 30th of March, shortly after the Article 50 notice had been issued, we had our first webinar which outlined the exit process and how businesses can start preparing. Our second webinar in early June outlined three scenarios to help us all think through the Brexit process. We called these Glide Path, Cliffhanger, and Cliff Edge. And we also set out a practical roadmap to help businesses along the way. The third webinar on the 28th of June looked at the UK's domestic legislative task ahead to implement Brexit. Today um, we are going to shed some light on the trade negotiating process and I'm really delighted to be joined by three of my colleagues uh, to help this afternoon. First of all, there's Lourdes Catrain, who leads our international trade practice in our Brussels office. Lourdes is an extremely experienced uh, in all aspects of trade law and economic sanctions. Secondly, Peter Watts, who leads our global commercial practice and our TMT industry sector, um, who will help us think about the issues from a practical business perspective. And finally, I'm delighted to be joined by my partner, Warren Maruyama, from our Washington, D.C. office. Warren is also a partner in our international trade group, and his practice focuses on dealing with cutting-edge trade policy challenges and with uh, negotiation of uh, trade agreements. Warren has served as the U.S. Trade Representative General Counsel, overseeing U.S. WTO dispute settlement challenges. Um, He has also served on the White House policy staff and helped develop President George Bush's NAFTA and Uruguay Round initiatives. So, um, um, we expect to be able to provide some great insights this afternoon on what lies ahead. So, in terms of the agenda and what we're going to cover, um, we're going to start with the future UK-EU relationship summarise briefly for you the global trading system, and then think through trade relations in a post-Brexit world. We'll then have a, a quick look at the treatment of financial services in free trade agreements, and then spend a little time thinking about helping you how to advance your business interests in the trade negotiation process, and finish up with a reminder of the Brexit resources that we have available to help you. So starting with the future UK-EU relationship, um, I thought it would be useful to start with the uh, where we are now, first from an EU position and then from the UK position. So, Lourdes, could I turn to you to set the scene with the EU, EU position?
2: Thank you, Susan. So, where we are here in Brussels with the EU? Well, both the EU guidelines of 29th of April and the follow-up negotiating directives provide a framework for the future EU-UK relationship during the second phase of the negotiations for the withdrawal of the UK from the EU. This second phase will only start, according to the EU, once sufficient progress has been made in the first phase of the withdrawal negotiations, which will cover citizen rights, the financial settlement, and the Northern Ireland border. The future relationship between the EU and the UK will be governed by a separate instrument, possibly a trade agreement, but not by the withdrawal agreement itself. Article 50 of the Treaty of the European Union provides that the withdrawal agreement will set out the arrangement for the UK's withdrawal, taking into account the framework for the future relationship of the two parties. In this context, both the UK and the EU have repeatedly stated the red lines for this negotiation, negotiating process. From the EU perspective, the four freedoms of the single market, that is, freedom of movement for goods, services, people, and capital are indivisible, and no sector-by-sector approach will be acceptable. Leaving the single market will imply that the UK will not be able to opt in for certain sectors, possibly more crucial for its economy. These boundaries have been confirmed last week by the EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, in his speech at the European Economic and Social Committee.
1: So, so Peter, thank you, Lauders. Peter, could you um, set the scene from the UK position?
3: Yes, so I think just briefly to set the scene. um, The the UK position has a lot of commonalities with the EU position. It's the same, but it's different in some important respects. Uh, And this slide just sets that out. It's also important to remember that this is the position stated by the UK government, um, but clearly complicated by the fact that there are differing views within the UK Parliament both on principle and emphasis. But there are I think uh, a couple of important points. So first of all the UK government's declaration right from after the uh, referendum vote was that the fundamentals of Brexit were to uh, regain control over immigration from the EU and to ensure that the the European Court has no direct legal authority in the UK. That's uh, no direct legal authority in the UK. Um, And the UK government has accepted the implications of that 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 really means leaving the single market and the customs union albeit that there are different views on that as I say in Parliament and finally the UK has been clear that it wishes uh, the new arrangements to allow it to do its own trade deals with the rest of the world and so far I think that list is pretty common with the position that the uh, Lord has set out as the EU position where the UK perhaps differs in emphasis is its uh, emphasis on having a deep and special partnership with the EU, albeit that it hasn't really defined the detail of exactly what that means, but clearly points in the direction, importantly in this context, of having a broader trade relationship than perhaps any other EU partner. And then finally, and as importantly, is around the process, which is as important for business as the outcome itself. Because clearly, the timing and uh, visibility of the direction of travel and the outcome are critical for business to be able to see. And this is perhaps where the differences of emphasis are greatest, because the UK has indicated that it's keen to get on and talk about trade early in the process, whereas, as Laudas has emphasised, the EU uh, wishes to clear some other substantial issues before getting into the detail of trade.
1: Thank you, Peter. So before we dive into the detail, I wondered whether we could bring Warren in to talk about the global trading system, just to give us an overview.
4: Thank you, Susan. Um, I'll just provide some context on the basic architecture that uh, the UK and the EU are operating in as they try and work out a future arrangement. The World Trade Organization is the cornerstone of the global trading system. The EU and the UK are both members, the UK in its individual capacity, and uh, they're both uh, covered by the WTO's rules. Uh, The rules on goods are found in the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. The rules on services are found in the General Agreement on Trade and Services, including an understanding on uh, financial services that provides uh, some more specific specific and specialized rules relating to the financial services sector. There are a host of other WTO agreements dealing with specific matters, such as dumping agriculture, subsidies, dispute settlement standards, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, because uh, the UK is a WTO member in its own right, um, its status as a WTO member won't change when it exits the EU although it will have to negotiate its own uh, country-specific tariff and services schedules unless, and this is a big unless, it wants to simply borrow uh, the schedules it's currently subject to as an EU member. Under the WTO's most favored nation principle, a WTO member can't favor the goods or services of one of its trading partners over those of other WTO members. However, GATT Article 24 and GATT's Article 5 provide an exception to the MFN principle for free trade agreements and customs unions. These are subject to certain requirements, including, most importantly, a requirement that the agreement lead to the elimination of substantially all tariffs and trade barriers. If no agreement is concluded between the EU and the UK, then the default Uh, arrangement will be that WTO rules will govern uh, EU-UK trade. And uh, this would mean that uh, UK goods entering the EU and EU goods entering the UK would be subject to normal tariffs. And services exports, importantly, would be limited to those set out in the EU's uh, services schedule, which at least in the EU's case is much more limited than those rights that the UK currently enjoys as an EU member state. We'll discuss this in more detail towards the end of our seminar.
1: Thank you, Warren. Um, I thought we could now turn to to Lourdes to think through for us in more detail, um, trade relations post-Brexit, starting with thinking about um, three preferential scenarios, and Lourdes, perhaps you could start by explaining what you mean by preferential um, in this
2: context. Yeah, thank you, Susa. Yes, these preferential scenarios outlined in the slide. Uh, provide the the options that will allow the EU and the UK better access, for instance, lower or no tariffs, or what we trade lawyers actually refer for preferential access to each other's respective territories. So there are uh, are main three models that can provide for this better access. The first one will be the European Economic Area. The second one, the EU being part of the customs union. The third one will be to conclude a free trade agreement. If none of these models will materialize, the EU-UK relationship as far as trade is concerned will be governed exclusively by the WTO rules. The European Economic Area is an agreement that establishes deeper economic integration among the EU Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway by creating the so-called internal market. This agreement covers all the four freedoms of the single market, goods, services, people, and capital. It obliges non-EU members to follow EU policies in certain areas. But the EEA does not create a common external tariff for exports and imports to and from non-EEA countries. Furthermore, the EEA does not impose the EU trade policy on the EA countries, and therefore, Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway pursue their individual trade agreements with non-EU countries independently from the EU. Products move freely between, for example, Norway and Spain, provided they fulfill the rules of origin that require a minimum amount of contact originating in the EEA countries. Let's now turn to the second option. So, the second option is the customs union. That is normally an area in which tariffs on goods are eliminated among the participating countries, and where a common customs tariff is applicable to export and imports to and from third countries. By way of an example, the EU and Turkey have a customs union which allows all industrial goods. Very importantly, agricultural goods are not covered in the EU-Turkey Customs Union, so they, but the industrial goods move freely between the EU and Turkey. The EU-Turkey Customs Union, very importantly, requires Turkey to align its trade policy with that of the EU. From a Customs Union perspective, services are not included. So this, as we all know, is a very important sector of the British economy, which will not be covered should the UK follow only the customs union approach with its relationship with the EU. Let's now turn to the third option, which is that of the free trade agreement. So what the free trade agreement establishes in a scenario in which tariffs and non tariff values are substantially reduced or completely eliminated, allowing goods to move freely, provided that they comply with the applicable rules of origin. A free trade agreement provides preferential market access for both goods and services. A free trade agreement, very importantly, does not establish a common trade policy among the participating countries. Therefore, if Britain were to conclude a free trade agreement with the European Union, it would not be bound to follow the EU trade policy. So, as we have seen, each of the three options contains certain elements that could reflect the UK's goal to a greater or lesser extent, Thus, the UK would have greater independence in its trade policy with third countries under the FTA option, whereas the EA would correspond to the UK's aspiration to regain its legislative and judicial independence from the European Union. The EU chief negotiator Michel Barnier stated that in his view, only the combination of the customs union and the rules of the internal market allow this free, frictionless trade between our states, leaving the single market but remaining in the customs union would not be, in his view, a possible alternative for the UK. But what are trade negotiations, you know, as the name said, are just negotiations. So in practical terms, this means that if the EU and the UK were to go for a trade agreement negotiation, everything is up for grabs, subject, of course, to the WTO's rules on substantially all that Warren outlined earlier. That the EU and the UK will be free to design a post-Brexit free trade agreement around the specific commercial needs and political constraints. This is why no two free trade agreements are the same, and there's no precise formula. It means that the EU and the UK are free to seek whatever specialized terms would address the 40-plus years or so of integrated interdependence economy. This should be considered against the background that in a no-deal scenario in which the EU-UK trade relations will be governed exclusively by the WTO. For instance, a British car would be subject to 10% duty when imported into the EU, and French wine will be subject to around 19% duty. Let's now move to the next slide, which provides a very quick overview of the rules to fulfill the tariff reduction, so the tariff preferences provided for in the various models that were examined in the previous slide. And we have taken a car as an example, but similar rules applies to other industrial sectors. So let's, for instance, look at the EU-Korea Free Trade Agreement. So under the rules of this agreement, a car is considered to have Korean origin if the value of the components not originating in either the EU or Korea represents a maximum of 45% of the ex-work price of the car. A car with originating status would enter the EU duty-free. Furthermore, the Korean car with originating status will also be able to enter Turkey duty-free because of the EU Turkey Customs Union. Under the free trade agreement scenario, A certain minimum processing or a minimum of value added would be required in the EU and the UK respectively. Therefore, a car will be deemed of UK origin if working or processing taking place in the UK or the EU exceeded the threshold that will be negotiated by the parties. A car assembled in the UK, for instance, with mainly US components, may not be able to benefit for the FTA. And if so, as we said, it will be subject to a 10% duty when imported into the EU. Now, moving on to the EU-Turkey Customs Union. The rules of origin applicable to the EU-Turkey Union are the so-called pan euro Mediterranean rules of origin. And actually, they also apply to EFTA countries. And under these rules, a card would obtain originating status, i.e., benefit from the tariff reduction is the value of the non-originating components used does not exceed 40% of its ex works price. And to make life simpler, uh, the European economic area has the same rules of origin for this purpose that the EU Turkey. So as you can see, you know it also refers to the 40% of the ex-work price. So now, moving into the next slide, and we, uh, we illust- illustrate the EU Free Trade Agreements. The colors indicate the stage of the negotiations or conclusions of these trade agreements. In particular, agreements that have entered into force, which approximately today are around 50 and with countries including Mexico, South Korea, South Africa, and Chile are colored with dark brown. A few agreements have been concluded but are not yet entering into force. And these are the uh, countries colored with light brown, such as Canada, the so called CETA, which news emerged last Friday that will be entering into force on a provisional basis on the 21st of September. So almost a little bit more than two months to go. Then we can see that a number of agreements are colored in yellow, which means that they are still under negotiation, and these are countries such as the U.S. and Japan. Given the developments of last week, we thought it would be worth noting, um, you know, the stage of the negotiations with Japan. And so, as of last week, you know, the EU and Japan reached what is called, you know, an agreement in principle of the main elements of the so-called economic partnership agreement. The EU and Japan agreement is aimed to remove the vast majority of duties paid by EU companies, which sum up to $1 annually, and opens the Japanese market to key EU exports. For some chapters of the negotiations, you know, it's worth mentioning that these are still ongoing. uh, And this includes, you know, investment protection. The EU has put its so-called reform investment core system on the table and other areas that require further work, such as regulatory cooperation and the general institutional chapters. The negotiations continue uh, on the remaining technical issues and they hope to conclude a final text by the end of 2017. Once the text is completed, the European Commission will proceed with the next stage, which will be the verification and translation of the agreement into all the EU official languages. And then it would be seeking the approval of the EU member states and the European Parliament. So now moving on to the next slide, a little bit of uh, policy now. So let's now consider how it's likely to be the UK's trade policy post-Brexit, but not only in relation to the EU and the US that Warren will be shortly talking, but also in terms of the rest of the world. So once the UK leaves the EU, the rules of the WTO will apply to its relations with other countries unless, of course, it concludes agreements with them or unless, of course, with the agreements which were shown in the previous slide, of, so the UK inherits one way or the other the benefits that it has already acquired by being part of the EU. An issue you know which may present practical difficulties is whether the UK will need to amend the so called WTO schedule of commitments because its current commitments are those offered by the EU at, that is to say they are part of the EU schedule. The question therefore you know arises and at least to the best of our knowledge, the UK has not been comp- clear so far is whether the UK will intend to replicate the EU Schedule of Commitments or whether it will try to amend them. In this case, you know, we would expect that the UK most likely will replicate what already has as part of the EU. And that should be, you know, in terms of tariffs, a reasonably straightforward uh, process. It can be getting a little bit more complicated in terms of agricultural products which are subject to tariff rate quotas. By way of an example, you know, agricultural exporters from Brazil and Argentina may wish to have better access to the UK. That the final solution, you know, on the tariff rate quota location is likely to require negotiations, not only between the EU and the UK, but also between those those and the other members of the, U, of the WTO affected. The UK will continue to be part of the or will continue to be subject to the WTO dispute settlement mechanism, which consists of panels of judges at the first level and the appellate body on appeal. Very important to know that the WTO dispute settlement mechanism is a state-to-state mechanism. That means that private parties do not have access. WTO disputes can be complex and long. For example, the subsidies dispute between Boeing and Airbus, one of the largest disputes today in terms of the volume of trade, started in 2004 and it hasn't been settled yet. Last but not least, and this is something that we would expect to be pretty important from the UK perspective, is that UK default option to the WTO would not really offer a great degree of liberalization or at least not the great degree of liberalization that the UK will aspire to. Since the EuroWay Round was concluded in 1994, little has been achieved in terms of further liberalization. That is the reason why WTO members, including the EU, have opted for bilateral or plurilateral trade agreements, offering selected market access, such as, for instance, the TISA, which that's a negotiation for a trade an agreement on services involving 23 members of the WTO, And another uh, agreement which is currently being negotiated is the Environmental Goods Agreement, which seeks to eliminate ties on certain environment-related products. And the negotiations cover 18 participants, including the EU and its member states.
1: Lourdes, thank you very much. I, I thought we'd now turn to Warren um, and ask him to reflect on the possible shape of UK-U.S. trade relations, particularly framed, of course, by President Trump assuring us all that there'll be a very quick uh, free trade agreement between the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, Warren, how possible is all of that?
4: Thanks, Susan. Um, there's been a lot of talk about uh, A UK-US free trade agreement. Uh, There seems to be interest on both sides of the Atlantic. And as you just noted, Trump uh, tweeted, uh, and he tweets a lot, that uh, we could expect a UK uh, free trade agreement very, very soon. One complication is that the UK can't negotiate and conclude trade agreements with other non-EU countries before its withdrawal from the EU under the um, Article 50 procedure. Until then, um, in 2019, the UK remains a EU member state and is bound by the EU's common commercial policy. Um, Despite the Trump administration's generally anti-trade posture, its uh, withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership with Japan and 10 other uh, Asian and Latin American countries, and its promises to renegotiate existing free trade agreements like uh, NAFTA and the U.S.-Korea free trade agreement, the Trump administration has continued to insist that it is committed to what we call, quote, bilateral trade deals, unquote. Now, no one knows exactly what this means yet. The U.K.-U.S. free trade agreement, if it happens, would provide a very useful opportunity to find out. Uh, The president's been very enthusiastic about a UK free trade agreement and to a lesser extent about a US Japan Free trade agreement where he's under a lot of pressure from US agriculture, particularly because of uh, the recent announcement that the EU and uh, Japan have reached an agreement in principle that would give European agricultural products preferential access to the Japanese market. Now, uh, The early signals from the Trump administration on what exactly would go into these bilateral trade deals have been all over the place. But uh, the signals are that it could involve some new provisions to um, deal with things that are priorities uh, for the Trump folks, like currency manipulation, steel dumping, uh, tougher rules of origin, greater scope for Buy America restrictions, and uh, much more limited dispute settlement rights, particularly uh, involving challenges to U.S. dumping and countervailing duty cases. A further complication is that under the U.S. Constitution uh, Congress, not the President, has the final say on trade agreements uh, such as free trade trade agreements, customs unions, or any other major uh, trade agreement. So Congress, uh, because this is a delegation of authority that allows the President to negotiate Uh, trade agreements will expect to be consulted throughout the process and in the end after a deal is struck the House and Senate must vote to approve the agreement. This uh, voting process takes place under uh, what in the US is called the Trade Promotion Authority or Fast-Track procedures which limit the scope for uh, last-minute amendments that might tinker with the deal and it also requires uh, the votes to take place with in, uh 90 legislative days. This is a term of art which translates to about six months in uh, real time and prevents uh, filibusters or blockages uh, particularly in the US Senate. Uh, the fast-track procedures were renewed in uh, 2015 after a major uh, legislative struggle. Um, they President Trump would have to renew them in 2018 which One would hope is going to happen, but um, no one should lay any bets on it. And that would leave um, a narrow window between 2019, when the UK exits uh, Europe, and July 1st of 2021, when the uh, TPA fast-track procedures are scheduled to expire. It's always possible they could be renewed, but this has typically been a long and arduous uh, process that uh, can take Uh, several years in the US Congress. Um, So uh, this is uh, an intriguing possibility. Uh, Certainly would um, be beneficial for both the US and the EU. But um, it does involve some complications. And I'll turn now to Peter.
1: It it, it, it does sound pretty challenging. Thank you, Warren. So uh, what I thought we might do is is try and bring, with the context of all of that from Lourdes and Warren, to bring that back to to the three Brexit models that we talked people through on previous webinars. Peter. Yes,
3: yeah, so um, just as a brief reminder, I think we talked about this on uh, the last two webinars. Um, if one looks at this slide, it, it shows us what's important for business in terms of the practicalities of the negotiating process and emphasizes the importance of getting clarity early. Um, Clearly, in a, in a bad outcome for everyone, the e- UK and the EU would negotiate at length, running right up to the point of Brexit occurring, and would reach no agreement, and we'd have, uh, we'd have the proverbial cliff edge off whichever one would fall, meaning that uh, following Brexit, there'd be very uh, reduced alignment between the UK and the EU positions, and, uh, and we'd be into that world of the, uh, the WTO that Lourdes touched on. Uh, Even though, if we move up the slide, we move into what we've called the cliffhanger here, Um, the negotiations would run to the end of the day. It might lead to uh, one of those outcomes in the middle territory, perhaps the free trade agreement of some sort that Lord S. talked about. Uh, But business would not see the shape of that until very late in the day. The problem with that is that it reduces certainty all the way through the Brexit process for businesses' planning and means there is a real risk that advice for business will become uh, at some point during the course of next year, you need to start planning for the worst. You need to start planning for that WTO world, a world in which uh, you face tariffs and barriers of one sort or another. And therefore, the only real world for business that will give a degree of certainty, a degree of confidence early in the process and therefore allow business to plan and start to act for the best rather than the worst we, if we have visibility of a good degree of alignment, some form of either long term or at least interim deal which sees us through on, on an aligned reduced tariff, some form of middle ground basis, and that would need to come pretty early in the process. And I think that highlights the challenges given the number of complexities that Lord and Warren have already talked about.
1: Thank you, Peter. Um, we now thought it would be interesting to take a slightly deeper dive into a particular sector so I'm going to turn back to to Warren and ask him to talk to us about um, the treatment of financial services in free trade agreements. Warren?
4: Well um, one thing that we've all heard about is uh, the importance of financial services to the UK economy and also about the importance of the passport which allows Uh, firms located in one EU member state to do business across uh, the entire uh, community. Um, In this regard, uh, both uh, US and EU free trade agreements, um, and this is relatively unusual, are characterized by detailed chapters on financial services. Um, The chapters are broadly similar and much of the language is virtually identical and apparently um, both the u.s and the eu negotiators have read each other's work and admired it somewhat Um, the financial services chapter was initially incorporated in the u.s uh, canada free trade agreement at the insistence of u.s regulators our uh, treasury department which wanted a much more limited uh, set of obligations for financial services than would apply generally to other uh, forms of services but the chapters have since evolved and expanded to include uh, certain specialized obligations that are tailored to the needs of financial services institutions and also to the needs of uh, regulators. The main provision is the inclusion of the so-called prudential principle, which allows regulators to override FTA uh, rules in order to address systemic risks. The main difference between the US and EU approaches to financial services is that US free trade agreements almost always take a negative list approach to financial services commitments, whereas until recently, the EU's FTAs took a positive list approach. The EU Canada FTA, though, also adopted a negative list. So this uh, hopefully will be a sign Um, of how the EU is going to approach financial services in the future. Um, We've been cautioned about using trade uh, jargon, so I'll briefly explain the difference. In a negative list system, all all services, including all financial services, are presumptively covered by FTA obligations unless a party takes what's called a specific non-conforming measures exception uh, that excludes it from FTA rules. Um, these exceptions are usually necessary because an existing U.S. or EU law discriminates against foreign uh, services and can't be changed uh, for political reasons. In contrast, in a positive list system, the only services covered are those that are specifically listed in a party schedule. This is uh, the approach that was taken in the WTO's general agreement on Uh, trade and services, and it generally leads to a much more truncated and narrow uh, set of uh, commitments. It's uh, popular though with uh, regulators who want to protect certain sectors because unless they do something affirmatively, um, the sector is out of the agreement. In uh, previous EU FTAs, the financial services commitments have been quite limited. Uh, Things like maritime and air transport insurance, reinsurance, And importantly, um, most uh, banking services have been largely excluded. Um, The substantive obligations that the US and EU have undertaken in past FTAs are virtually identical and are heavily drawn from the GATs. These include uh, non-discrimination, most favored nation, you can't discriminate between trading partners, national treatment. Foreign uh, financial services providers have to be treated the same as uh, domestic banks and insurance companies. Market access, uh, a party can impose quotas or other quantitative restrictions or uh, market share caps on foreign financial services uh, providers or institutions. Transparency, um, a general uh, requirement to provide transparency since it's so important to doing business. And finally, the right to oppose uh, senior managers without regard to restrictions on foreign nationals. There are also three provisions that are particularly noteworthy. First, both the US and the EU free trade agreements enshrine the prudential principle, which gives uh, broad rights for financial regulators to step in to address systemic risks, regardless of FTA obligations. So this is a major override provision. Second, while financial services chapters are subject to investor state arbitration, the rights are much more limited than those set out in the FTA's investment chapters and do not include key obligations like national treatment, most favored nation treatment, and fair and equitable treatment, which tend to be at the heart of uh, most investment disputes. They do cover, however, expropriations. Um, the U.S. Uh, included um, in the George W. Bush administration broader ar- arbitration rights in the U.S.-Rwanda Bilateral Investment Treaty, but this was abandoned in the Trade-Pacific Partnership by the Obama administration, and it's unclear where the Trump administration would stand on this. Um, finally, though, and hopefully, uh, the FTA's uh that the US and EU have done both include a potential pathway to addressing the EU's concerns about the the UK's concerns about the EU passport, although it would likely involve breaking major new ground. Um, Under both US and EU free trade agreements, and as provided in the GATS, a party can accord what's called recognition in trade terminology to another party's regulatory measures and systems. This concept is commonly employed in uh, food and agricultural trade, this is where it's found uh, most frequently, to address food safety regulations so that a food or agricultural product that's regulated by another government is allowed entry into another FTA or WTO member on the grounds that um, it achieves uh, roughly the same level of protection and doesn't pose a risk to human health or to plant or animal life. And so in this uh, situation, the U.S., for example, could deem Swiss or French systems for regulating the production of cheese to be equivalent to our own U.S. systems because they lead to a similar level of protection. Recognition has not been employed nearly as frequently in financial services because of the far greater complications of assessing and evaluating equivalency but it certainly is out there and it ought to be much simpler to apply in a brexit contest since uh, the uk already adheres to eu regulatory requirements and has already been deemed to be equivalent Um, trade rules uh moreover are as lord has pointed out not fixed in stone but can be freely adapted in a free trade agreement or a customs union or some other arrangement to fit a party's commercial needs. And this includes the concepts of equivalence and harmonization or some form of bespoke agreement that uh, both parties are uh, designed uh, and prepared to provide recognition to. So a bespoke arrangement is certainly feasible as long as the UK is willing to push it, the EU is willing to go along, and the other provisions of the FTA can be worked out and don't get in the way. Uh, One complication, though, is if one party's regulatory requirements evolve, and as a result, the other party unilaterally terminates um, the arrangement. Uh, The U.S. just went through a very unpleasant experience with this, with the U.S.-EU safe harbor, which was negotiated uh, by one of our colleagues, Ambassador Pommet, in in 1998, and dealt with cross-border transfers of personal data. The agreement worked uh, quite well for just short of 20 years, but uh, did not meet the EU's evolving standards of privacy protection. And this required, uh, necess- uh, required working out a new arrangement, uh, the Privacy Shield, whose fate ultimately remained somewhat murky. Um, and finally, uh, just as a practical matter, assessing equivalency in a financial services context tends to be Uh, somewhat more complicated because it involves systemic risk, and it requires a high degree of trust, and it also requires cooperation between financial regulators who have been uh, notoriously uh, jealous of their own uh, individual prerogatives.
1: Warren, Warren, thank you very much. Um, and just before we finish, um, I thought could we turn to back to business and business interests. So, Warren, could you um, help people listening to think how they can advance their own business interests um, through this process?
4: Well, trade negotiations um, are negotiations, but they're also highly specialised. And what makes pre-trade agreement negotiations unique? is the vast number of uh, stakeholders. Uh, Behind every tariff or free trade agreement rule, there is one or more domestic producers and their workers who either support expanded uh, trade because they smell enhanced export opportunities, or oppose it because they're fearful of foreign competition. In addition, uh, many, if not most, free trade agreements or customs unions are subject to legislative, congressional, or parliamentary approval process processes. And so as a result, free trade negotiations are almost always highly political. And a key element of successfully bringing home a free trade agreement is building uh, domestic political support for it. And so for this reason, uh, a free trade agreement, and particularly a big and complex one, typically requires governments to engage in extensive stakeholder consultations and also consultations with their Congress, Parliament, or legislature uh, starting before the negotiations even begin and generally continuing throughout the negotiation process to sort out different and conflicting industry demands and adjust to the progress in the negotiations. For an industry that wants to play in Brexit and the negotiation of future commercial arrangements between the UK and EU, it's important for your business. You need to understand uh, the FTA negotiation and um, political dynamics. Uh, It's important at the very outset, uh, before the negotiations even begin, to uh, develop um, an industry's goals and arm your negotiators with them so that they can go into the negotiation knowing exactly what you want, what you need. Um, And this is really important if an industry has specific commercial needs that have to be addressed. It's important uh, to build a consensus within an industry, since if there are multiple and conflicting voices uh, speaking for an industry or a sector, your negotiators are likely to throw up their own hands or go their own way, or even worse, adopt your competitor's approach uh, to how uh, Brexit should be addressed. It's important to build political support for your goals, and that means working with your negotiators uh, and uh, your legislators. You want it so that um, there's a strong uh, political backing for your uh, priorities and that your negotiators know that any agreement that doesn't address them is dead on arrival. That ensures that you don't get thrown overboard during the course of the negotiations, which is something that unfortunately sometimes happens. Um, You need to work closely with your negotiators throughout the process, including going to some of the key meetings. Uh, Since parties rarely get everything they want, reaching an agreement often requires compromises or adjustments. And uh, you may need to be on the spot to advise your negotiators on what they should do next. And one uh, hopeful thing, uh, because trade negotiations are highly political, even a small industry can play a major role. And there are abundant examples of tiny industries or companies who manage to secure protection or enhance commercial opportunities in an FTA by energetically working The political process
1: thank you Warren Peter anything to add to that from a UK perspective
3: yes just I think a a couple of points one one perhaps a negative one positive all all the points and cautions that Warren made there around the challenges are going to be uh, uh, extended for the UK of course because the UK system is going to be fully stretched by trying to take all the steps necessary to give effect to Brexit itself make the changes from the existing processes uh, that exist uh, to the new world Uh, and we'll see when the uh, repeal bill is announced later this week the first stages of that but there's going to be a real stretch on legislative and executive capacity so it's even more important than usual for industry to get in there first and try and be helpful uh, to shaping those the positive side of course is that whilst negotiating new deals with the US or anywhere else uh, is going to be a stretch because the UK is already going to be pushed in trying to do its job with the EU. Um, uh, the EU-UK Euro- the EU- basis, as Warren also mentioned, is at least starting from a current state of alignment, so it's perhaps a little bit less challenging than starting from scratch.
1: Thank you both very much. And just to finish up, a reminder of the Hogan Lovells Brexit resources so for further guidance um, and help please do visit our dedicated Brexit hub at hoganlovells.com. Forward slash Brexit. This contains all of our latest thinking on the legal issues about Brexit, including our recently released practical roadmap. You can also sign up for our regular Brexit bulletin email on the hub by using the button at the top of the page. We will be holding more um, webinars in this series, um, and we'll come back to you and let you know when those will be. Um, finally, as always, um, if you want to discuss how Brexit um, impacts on your specific business and what you can do to prepare. Um, do get in touch with us by contacting a member of the team or by emailing brexit at hoganlovels.com. So I'd just like to thank uh, Lord S., Warren and Peter for joining me. Thank you very much uh, and thank you to all of our audience for listening.